At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 296th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where three days a week we work together, educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Raising farm animals in your backyard is not just rewarding, it's actually easier than you think, especially when you have Kari Spencer to help get you prepared. Just text CHICKENS to 33444 or visit BackyardFarmAnimals.com and you will receive our free webinar on how to raise chicken, goats, and more, promote biodiversity, and put your backyard animals to work. Today on our podcast, we have someone who knows a bit about grapes and the beverages they can produce. We're talking with Peggy Fiendaka about Arizona wines and raising grapes for wines. After a slight detour through urban planning, Peggy found her true calling in growing and producing wines. With her Italian family heritage and a grandfather that produced alcohols during Prohibition, this path was in her vines, so to speak. She and her husband, Kurt Dunham, own a vineyard in southeastern Arizona and the LDV Wine Gallery in Scottsdale, Arizona. Here she enjoys watching someone taste wine and identify the flavor characteristics for the first time or examine a vine closely with a new appreciation for its role in producing that wine. Peggy has served two terms as president of the Arizona Wine Growers Association. Thank you for that, by the way, from a wine drinker which represents wineries and vineyards statewide, and she cares deeply about all the vineyards in the state. Welcome to the show today, Peggy. Thanks, Greg. Glad to be here. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Absolutely, Greg. You know, it certainly wasn't on the bucket list of things to do with the rest of our lives to become grape growers. It was kind of a midlife crisis. Both my husband and I, we loved wine. We traveled all over the world uh, visiting wineries, walking through the vineyards, talking to winemakers. It had nothing to do but to be the smartest people at the cocktail party, basically, Uh to be able to talk about wine. And we have a wine cellar, so we love to be able to pull out unique bottles of Mm. wine from our wine cellar and turn people like you onto a new bottle of wine. We were turning 50 at the time, Mm -hmm. and we were trying to figure out what are we going to do with the second half of our life. Kind of serendipity. We visited southeastern Arizona, tasted some wine of some friends who had started making wine down there. Uh-huh. We said, wow, if they can be producing this great quality wine, maybe this is something we should look into. We decided, let's, let's look at some property. And 40 acres later and a <laughs> huge building on the property, mm-hmm. we found ourselves in the wine business. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was a crazy, it's been a crazy adventure ever since. If we were going to do it, we wanted to do it right. Yeah. So we wanted to 
plant the right varietals, mm-hmm. we wanted to choose the right spot, and we wanted to make high-quality wine. And we wanted to control the entire process from the grapes all the way till you purchased that bottle of wine. Oh, nice. So we have yet to have a vintner on the show, so I'm really excited to chat with you. And my brain is just exploding with questions because I've been growing food here in the desert for 42 years now. And grapes are one of the more challenging things to grow here. So how well are you doing with the grapes? Let's start there. You know, it's funny. People are shocked that we are growing grapes and making wine in Arizona. Uh But we have a long history that people don't realize of grape growing in Arizona. It actually dates back to the early 1600s. Whoa. Yes, I know it. And actually, there were some grapes in in the Phoenix area on Camelback Mountain. I saw some, not 1600s, but early in our history. Uh When you think about Arizona and New Mexico before we became a state, Mm -hmm. we had a lot of missionaries that brought grapes to this territory. And in fact, we had more grapes in the ground up until the 20th century than California did. Oh, wow. (laughs) But lo and behold, when we became a state in 19, I think it was 1914, Mm -hmm. we had a group of folks that sent a bill through the legislature that started basically prohibition before the rest of the country. Right. And I, I think it became federal law in 1915. So grape growing in Arizona really took a back seat for a very long time, and a lot of the grapes that were in the ground disappeared. Mm -hmm. And Arizona, even though California did some winemaking and grape growing during Prohibition, Arizona did not. It wasn't until like the 1970s where this state began to think about grape growing again and looking at the possibility of where we would grow the grapes, where the quality soils might be. University of Arizona did a study that looked at the entire state and determined where there might be some good grape-growing regions in the state. Yeah, That'd be a nice study. Absolutely it is. Gordon Dutt, who is a, a professor in the College of Agriculture, and who came from the University of California in Davis, really did an in-depth study that the state of Arizona, the governor at the time, commissioned. And wow. they, they really looked at where can we grow grapes from Tucson area all the way up to Kingman, all the way to the south. And they determined some regions that were appropriate. We had our first license in modern time for winemaking in 1982. Then it Still, we're kind of slow in getting back into the game. California, of course, was really starting to take off. And it wasn't until 2006, I think it was, where we finally jumped over some hurdles in terms of how we can produce wine in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And the industry has been slowly beginning to take off ever since then. Wow. How cool is that? So I'm a little bit familiar with growing grapes for wine in the state. And I know that Phoenix isn't a good place for that. Correct. Not for wine grapes. Right. Well, and, and really the only thing that grows really well here is the Thompson seedless grape. The rest of them are marginal at best. So really we need a place that's a little bit cooler than the low desert? Absolutely. And in Arizona, there's really three main grape growing regions that have the great terroir, as we call it, mm-hmm. the, the great environment for wine grape growing. The very first area that had grapes was down in the Sonoida Elgin area, which is south of Tucson on the way to Nogales or the Mexico border. And that is the oldest designated American viticulture area. 
in the state of Arizona. Wow. And that a federal designation for AVA, if you've probably heard that term, AVA. I haven't. What's it mean? It's American Viticulture Area. Ah, very good. You have to do a pretty in-depth study of the soils and the temperature and the, the growing season in order to determine the uniqueness of that region before you get a designation. Wow. So Sonoida Elgin area was our first mm -hmm. in the state. And then recently we have another ABA that was designated just last year, I believe it was, which is around the Wilcox area. It's the Wilcox ABA. Oh, right. And that area is in Cochise County, which is southeastern Arizona, near the Mexico-New Mexico border. And it's about 4,200 feet in elevation. So we were talking about you need to have cooler temperatures for grape growing. Mm -hmm. That is where there's plentiful land available, as well as it's a great place to grow grapes. And the majority of grapes in Arizona are grown in and around that Wilcox area in Cochise County. And then we have one other main growing region, which is up in the Verde Valley near Sedona. A lot of people know where Sedona is or in the central part of the state, Camp Verde, Clarkdale, mm -hmm. and Cottonwood. And that region has grapes in the ground and have been growing. And they're in the process of getting a designation wow. for an AVA. Yeah. And there's one other region a little bit outside of Wilcox where I am, uh -huh. which is a little higher elevation. It's in the Chiricahua Mountains. Ooh. Yes, it's beautiful. It's about 5,000 foot elevation. The Chiricahua Mountains were a volcano at one time and viewed this incredible granite on our property, and it's great for grape growing. But we're in the process of also getting an AVA because it's a little different than the Wilcox area because it's about 30 minutes away and it's higher elevation. So we're in the process of getting an AVA for that area too. Wow. I know that it takes a lot of work to work with an association. So I, again, I want to thank you for that. But you served as the president for the Arizona Wine Growers Association for two terms. Tell us a little bit about that. And then we're going to talk about growing grapes and making wine. Absolutely. The Arizona Wine Growers Association is a professional organization that pulls together all of the grape growers as well as winemakers in the state of Arizona. And in fact, we are reaching over 100 licenses in the state of Arizona. Not everyone is producing their own grapes, right. but they're making wine because there's several different models that you can use mm -hmm. to get in this business. But it's a tremendous industry. Uh, we recently had a study done by Northern Arizona University. We have about a $3.6 million impact on state and local taxes in the state Whoa. of Arizona in terms of wine industry tourism, creating 640 jobs for a total economic output of $56.2 million. <laughs> wow. It's small in comparison to, say, California or Washington or Oregon, but what's exciting about it is it's growing, and it's growing fast, so we can look for more economic impact by this industry in the future. How exciting is that? Thanks for sharing about that. It is, absolutely. So let's talk about growing grapes and a little bit about growing grapes, but then making wine. So we have to grow specific grapes, right? Absolutely. What we did and what you typically do is before we even purchased the property, we had five criteria that we were looking for when we selected our place in order to, again, produce the highest quality grapes that we could so we can produce fine wine. Mm -hmm. So five criteria that we used, the first one is kind of based on our taste of what we like. Mm -hmm. We wanted mountain-influenced weather. So mm. we wanted to be 
high altitude and we wanted to be close to a mountain, which the Chiricahua Mountains are right in my, our backyard, basically. Right. And as you know, as a farmer, mountains create their own kind of weather. Yes. And that, we felt, is important to our ability to grow great grapes. The second criteria was we needed clean and plentiful water. And though grapes are, wine grapes and grapes in general, are low water use crop, they like to be stressed and they use a low amount of water compared to other production crops. Right. Where we are located in southeastern Arizona, we are on one of the largest closed aquifers in the state of Arizona. And so being high on the mountain, we're the first straw in to that aquifer but it flows into an underground lake in the Wilcox Playa. Mm -hmm. So right now we have plentiful water, but things can change over time, and we always have to be cognizant. The third one criteria that we're looking for is volcanic soil. And as I mentioned earlier, that Chiricahua Mountain was a volcano, and it spewed this beautiful rhyolite granite through our property in about three-mile radius area, and it creates incredible rock underneath the topsoil of about really rich volcanic soil. So great soils. And four was we needed airflow. And of course, being close to that mountain, Mm -hmm. you have the the wonderful airflow. And then we have 20 acres in this riparian area, which Ash Creek runs out of the Chiricahua Mountains. So we have this tremendous water drainage that flows to that creek because you don't want the roots of your vines to be sitting in water. So it has great water drainage. And the last one for us, because we were going to be growing grapes as organically as possible, though we are not certified organic, we did not want to have any other production crop near us or previously on our property. So we we wanted to have a pure start. And we found all of that in our 40 acres. It's been fun ever since. Yeah, it's amazing what happens when we set an intent for what we want. And I always like talking about this in the podcast because when we set our intent, we get to create what we want. And when I went to buy this house that I'm at, the Urban Farm, I'm near 16th Street and Bethany Home in North Central Phoenix, we had a list of 10 criteria and we got Mm -hmm. every single one of them because we had them on the list. We said to the universe, all right, universe, this is what we want. So of course you're going to get it. That's exactly right. And we did the same thing when we set out to, if we were going to go into this business, we're going to find a perfect spot or we're not going to do it. Yeah. We were lucky. Perfect. Or did you make your own luck? That's really the question. <laughs> that is very true. I, I think part of it is you have to see it yes. when it's presented to you and grab hold of it and then go forward, not be too scared. Exactly. We jumped off the deep end into the pool and <laughs> never looked backwards. <laughs> You know, you said earlier that this was a, a nice midlife crisis. I love that. For me, every time I shift from one business to another, call me a serial entrepreneur. I've had about 30 businesses. Uh-huh. Some of them lasted, I say, a sneeze. Some of them lasted, actually, I've had two that have lasted over 20 years each. And every time I hit one of those midlife crises, so to speak, it was exciting for me. It was like, it is. bring it on. What can I do next? So hitting life with that gusto it's and what could be better than going into the wine business exactly exactly <laughs> i mean there's some things if i knew then what i know now you just got to go for it if something presents itself just go for it yeah and we went from 
in August of 2007 mm -hmm. to never even thinking about being in the wine business to having Thanksgiving dinner at our winery house that year. Whoa. And then, by gosh, someone defaulted on the exact rootstock and exact grape varietal that we wanted, and we were planting that spring. So that meant from fall to spring, we had to clear the land, mm -hmm. put in all the <laughs> infrastructure, all the irrigation, and be ready to receive those plants, two acres of plants, that spring. And we've been running ever since. So your grapes have been in the ground nine years now? If I did yeah, the math right. Yeah, next year will be 10 years. Yep. Wow. This is our eighth vintage. We're in harvest right now. Cool. So how many, on t you said two acres, right? Originally. We're 13 producing acres now. Oh, very good. And how many grapevines do, let's just start with one acre. How many grapevines do you put on an acre? An acre, um, I don't, I can't think of how many exact vines, but it's a mile of vines. So one acre <laughs> equals about a mile of vine. And we're at 13. 13 miles of vines, maybe a half marathon of vines. <laughs> exactly. And they're all hand-picked and mm -hmm. hand-attended to every step of the way. What varieties are you growing? We're doing Rhone varietals. So that means from the Rhone Valley of France. So mm -hmm. we, our only white grape is Viognier, and we have a Grenache, Petit Syrah, and Syrah. So we do four varietals, yes. And our goal is to focus on those varietals and do them really well. Grow them. We think they grow beautifully on our place, then not screw it up when we get into the winery and just really reflect those varietals. Yeah, exactly. All right, cool. So you're harvesting grapes now. Do you actually crush them with your feet? Uh, we don't, though some folks still do that, but we do not do that, no. You're harvesting all these great grapes right now. What's the next step? You do kind of everything at the same time. Mm. So for example, harvest started August 20th. We started to bring the white wine grapes in the Viognier and we did about nine tons of that. Of grapes? Yes, nine tons of wow. white grapes. Yep, the white grapes. And so you process it as they come in from the field. So you're beginning the winemaking process as you're finishing harvest. We also brought in about five tons of Syrah grapes thus far, 17 tons of Grenache. Whoa. Yesterday, I think it was, they finished up the, the fermentation process on the Syrah grapes were done and they have moved on into their final resting spot into the barrels wow. that they are going to, to rest in. We age our wine quite long in comparison to other Arizona wineries, 30 to 33 months. They'll be in their barrels in the winery tucked away for a while. We did the 17 tons of Grenache and we're estimating starting picking the last grape Monday, we're estimating another 20 tons of Petite Syrah wow. that needs to come in. So we're juggling. It's a lot oh, of yeah. wine. And when you're aging wine in the winery, as long as we do, we have a lot of wine still in barrels mm -hmm. aging in our winery. So yeah. it's a big juggling act for wow. my husband, who is in charge of the vineyard and the, the, that part of the winemaking process. How exciting. It is. First of all, I had no idea you raised that many grapes and that much tonnage, but I can only imagine that the area, the space that you have to age this wine, is it's got to be a huge space. 
it's very interesting the way that we're doing it because we're considered an estate winery. So that means, like I said earlier, we have control of everything. Mm -hmm. So when you think about other farm products or farm crop, uh, a person growing corn Mm -hmm. basically grows the corn, sells it, or a person that grows cotton, grows the cotton, but he doesn't make the genes, right? right? Yeah. But we are the whole production cycle. So we are growing the grapes. We're the manufacturing, so we're processing those grapes. Right. Then we're turning that processed fruit into wine, so we're in that end of the scale. Then we're producing that wine and distributing it to stores or hotels or to the consumer. So we also are on the retail end as well as the distribution end. So we're the whole supply chain. We feel it's exciting, a lot of work and crazy process and logistic. Oh, yeah. But we have a 4,000 square foot winery mm-hmm. on our property and we have about a 1,600 square foot, what we call the crush pad. When the grapes come in from the field, they get processed under the crush pad before they get tucked into the winery and they're either fermentation process or into their barrels. Wow. Did, yeah. How big was the crush pad? It's about 1,600 square feet and it's covered, which thank goodness in the Arizona sun. Uh-huh. Um, we're not having to oh, do yes. all that out in the heat of the day. And it's positioned beautifully in terms of the way the sun moves in the sky. So it's it's much more comfortable than a lot of folks have to do it out in the open sun. But you know where we are, the temperatures aren't as hot as they are in the Phoenix area. <laughs> so this crush pad, you bring the grapes to the crush pad. Do they get squished there and the juice comes out of them there? Correct. Well, what we do, particularly with our red wine, I'll take you through a red wine, uh, like the Syrah or the Petite Syrah or Grenache. We bring those grapes in, and you know the color of wine is made from the skins and the seeds. All wine grapes on the inside are white. Oh. And the flavor comes from the skin and the grapes. So when they harvest the grapes, they bring it to the crush pad, and what we do is check them, pull out any leaves or any things that we don't want to go through the distemmer. Uh-huh. And we send it through a distemmer that takes all of that, the stems, the leaves, whatever else might be on those red grapes, before they go into the fermentation tank that they will go into. And then we, at that point, we will inoculate them with yeast because it'll begin their fermentation process. Right. We do not use native yeast. Some winemakers choose to use native yeast. Mm-hmm. Again, it's our we're control freaks, and we want to control that process. And so we choose um, yeast that we understand our grapes and understand the juice, you know, the alcohol, potential alcohol content that's going to be in each of those. Right. So we choose yeast that will help that fermentation process along for those particular varietals. So we'll start that fermentation process, which could last from five to 14 days or so, if we're lucky. The fun part of that process is you have to do three a day punch downs which means like if we have, I think we have about over 30 of these large containers, bins of fermenting juice in the winery. Three times a day, you have to go out there and punch down because the cap, the top part of the bins where Uh the solids rise to the top, it gets hard and you have to punch them down and get the juice flowing again, you know, moving. Sounds like a full-time exercise job for 
for someone. It does. Yeah. No need to go to the the, <laughs> the gym. The yeah, exactly. Yeah. So three times a day, that's done. And then when its fermentation is over, then we press the wine, which means it goes through our press of that mm-hmm. juice. All of those solids and the juice go into our press and we press it and begin to have the finished wine that will then go into a variety of different barrels. Most likely we put most of our red in barrels. Then it'll stay for up to 33 months in the in the winery. Wow. Okay, I'm sold. I want to get some. Yeah. <laughs> and so what you all did is you started a store, the LDV Wine Gallery in Scottsdale. So tell us about that. So cuz people can actually come there and experience your wine and learn more about this process, right? Absolutely. It's in Old Town Scottsdale in the heart of everything happening in in Old Town, 6951 mm-hmm. East 1st Street. I'm on my way. Good, 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 good. We open at noon. It's the perfect place to taste our wines, Uh purchase our wines. But what our goal was is to bring a piece of the vineyard to Scottsdale because we want for people to experience a little bit about this winemaking process, to learn about it, and understand the handcrafting that goes into every single bottle of our wine. Mm -hmm. So hopefully their appreciation for the farming process, the winemaking process, becomes part of their enjoyment of that bottle of wine. And we have a pretty in-depth website. We have an actual diary from day one on the our entire process. We kept notes on every step of the way on our wow. process. But that's www.ldvwinery.com, or people can call the gallery at 480-664-4822. We are on all the social media LDB Winery on social media. We're very active on social media. We do a monthly blog, and I do Wine Tip Wednesdays. Oh, nice. Yeah. We're just all about education. We try to create that opportunities for people to become educated about the the growing process as well as the winemaking process. And we ran across each other. We were on set over at AZTV here. I was doing a segment on fruit trees and you were doing a segment on wine and I noticed that there was something on your table that said winery that you were you were the winery and it's like that piqued my interest. Yeah, it was great. Serendipity again. I'm supposed to ask you about the Harvest Festival? Oh, yes. Thank you. It's an annual event. We're right in the middle of harvest, so it's a lot of hard work, and it'll be over in October. And so we like to get together with people and friends and celebrate the harvest. This year, it is October 31st. It is at the Wine Gallery in downtown Scottsdale. We are going to be doing some grape stomping. Oh, nice. This will be your opportunity to to have that Lucy experience. I'm sorry, it's the 28th of this year. 28th. Um, 28th this year. So we're going to have food. We're going to have wine tasting. We're going to do the grape stomping. You'll get a chance to talk to the winemaker and talk about the harvest. It's just a great way to celebrate all that we did this year. How fun. So by the time this podcast comes out, you'll still have time to get there. So remind us where to find information on the Harvest Festival and LDV Wine. Absolutely. Get onto our website, www.ldvwinery.com. There will be a link to register for the Harvest Festival, and you can learn everything about us on that website. Perfect. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed how you overcame that failure and what you learned from it. 
Well, that's a great question because you go through life, you have a lot of failures. At least you think they're failures at the time that turned out to be great opportunities. The one that came to my mind was I had always wanted to be an architect and loved to draw and went to college and went to pre-architecture, two years of pre-architecture, and then you apply to the College of Architecture, Mm -hmm. which I did. And I didn't get accepted to the College of Architecture that year. They only accepted a couple, nine people, I think they did at that time, and I wasn't one of them. And I was devastated because I had always thought I was going to be an architect. I was trying to figure out, now what do I do? And urban planning was something I had never heard about, and it was in the College of Architecture. So you went to ASU? I went to ASU. Yep, I did too. So I decided it only took two more years to get through urban planning, three years for architecture, and so I decided I'm going into urban planning. It was the best opportunity that I could have had. I, I've had this incredible career now in urban planning, and I would have been a horrible architect. Interestingly enough, I graduated from Arizona State University with a minor in urban planning in 2004. Wow, okay. And, and a master's in urban and environmental planning in 2006. Uh, you know, we, we have some uh, common background there. We certainly do. That's awesome. I had no idea. So what do you consider your biggest success? Well, related to that, I was awarded in 2009 the Historic Planning Pioneer Award in Arizona, which was, oh my a, gosh. Which wow. was a total shock. I was the first woman to be given that uh-huh. honor from the Arizona Planning Association. And previous folks that received that were Pala Solari, they were Frank Lloyd Wright, some incredible people, and then me. So for my career in planning and the impact that I had through my profession on Arizona planning. So I was thrilled to receive that. Wow, no kidding. Where were you working in planning at? I started my career with the city of Chandler, Arizona, when it was only 19,000 people. And (laughs) I know it, right? And then I worked at the regional level and I was under Governor Babbitt. I was the planning manager for the state of Arizona. Oh, wow. Worked with communities all over the state on community and economic development for about eight years before Mm -hmm. I started my consulting firm that I am just now closing down after almost 20 some years in the business. Wow. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That was a big shift into wine. So it yay is. Yep. For you. <laughs> yay for you. So what drives you? You know, what gets me excited every day is connecting with people and places. How we define the wine business is all about connecting with people. It might be our workers in our field. It might be the helpers that we have on the crush pad, or it's our customers in the wine gallery. And being able to talk about what our passion is and to turn them on to something new through our product, which are grapes or our wine, is what excites Mm -hmm. me. Perfect. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, this was a tough one because I listen to books on tape because I drive all the time. And so I read books for enjoyment and escape. So I -hmm. don't read anything heavy. The latest one I just read was Brad Meltzer's The President's Shadow. And I I think what I liked about it was the secret agencies that around the U.S. government protecting the presidency and the conspiracy 
as well as there is a, the National Archives played a major role in that particular oh, book. Oh, nice. So it was a great yeah. escape for me. Perfect. Yeah, I like uh, legal thrillers, so I'm with you on that one. I do too. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, wake up, get involved, make a difference, and have fun. That is my motto. I wake up every day excited for the, a new experience. I really try to get involved not only in my life, but in my community, in, my, in what's going on around me. I'm always trying to make an impact in either my profession or my community mm -hmm. or in someone else's life. But by all means... If you're not having fun, don't do it. And so we try to laugh and have fun yeah, every day. Yeah, absolutely. We got to have fun doing what we're doing. Otherwise, I say mm -hmm. find something else to do. Exactly. Life is way too short. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Peggy. I have loved chatting with you about wine. Thank you, Greg. I really did, too. I appreciate the time. You bet. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? ldbwinery.com. Please visit the website. Stop into the wine gallery in downtown Scottsdale and say hi and taste our wine and purchase our wine. And that gallery number is 480-664-4822 or follow us on social media at LDV Winery. We look forward to seeing people. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash LDV wines. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Raising farm animals in your backyard is not just rewarding, it's actually easier than you think, especially when you have Kari Spencer to help get you prepared. Just text chickens to 33444 or visit backyardfarmanimals.com and you will receive our free webinar on how to raise chicken, goats, and more promote biodiversity, and put your backyard animals to work. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.